Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Flail Forward. This is your host, Rob. And today I have with me Catrice. Say hi, Catrice. Hello. Ah. Oh, God. <laughs> Perfect. Damn it. We're going to have to. Nope, that's good. We're going to, we're running with that. Awesome. <laughs> Catrice with me. And we got a very special guest joining us today. He is one of the authors of D&D 3rd Edition, Ars Magica, Talislanta, 13th Age, and the new edition of Over the Edge that was just released, uh, June. Yep, June. Jonathan Tweet joining us. Hi there. A very big flail forward welcome. Thanks. Hey. Happy to be here. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks very much. I love talking about games. Yes, so do we. So this should go hopefully not too terrible. So the reason I'm, I'm glad you're on because the new edition of Over the Edge sort of takes... Now, I didn't read the original Over the Edge. It's, it's hard to find. But what I've read about it is that it was opening a gateway into player agency by opening up the, the field in a way. Yeah. What were your initial thoughts surrounding that? Yeah. Yeah, that's great. So Over the Edge is um, a game that I started... Uh, playing with my friends back in 1990. Back then, it was not intended for publication. In fact, it was intended to be the unpublishable game that only my friends and I would ever play. Yes, I heard you actually fought with your publisher to not publish it. Yeah, I tried to talk John Nephew out of it. I was like, you don't understand how weird this game is and how different it is from all the other role-playing games. Uh, but he said that's exactly what he went into publishing to do, is to do new stuff. And so so here we are. In some ways, um, like in a big way, the game Over the Edge, the campaign that I was running, was a reaction to um, my experience with uh, Ars Magica. So Mark Reinhagen and I had created Ars Magica, released that in 1987, and um, created source material, ran it at conventions. You know, I got a real good taste for what it's like to bring players on board with that game. And one of the issues that I ran into over and over again was since the game is based in literally in Europe, in the you know sort of mythic Middle Ages, there were lots of things that players might want to do that they couldn't do, right? Like, you know, if you want to play one of the Roma Gypsy, I would have to say, oh, you know, they really weren't in Europe yet. And so you can't play one. And... Um, in addition, if you wanted to play a character of some sort, you had to sort of learn the rules first to see what sort of characters were allowed and what the scope was. And and um, then you had to pick your character's abilities off lists. And if there was an ability you wanted that wasn't on a list, you just couldn't do it. And so what I wanted instead was a game where I could say to my friends, hey, it's the modern day, it's a weird setting where anything goes, make up a character, and you know you have to have three traits and a flaw and uh, an important person in your life, and you just make that up. And so that was, for me, a real, uh, a real breakthrough where people could create the characters that they wanted, characters that they'd never been able to play anything like it before, characters that they could never play in anybody else's role-playing game and and really the setting it takes place in sort of a uh, a pariah state an island that is run by a corrupt government and it's sort of an anything goes setting with uh, weird drugs and uh, lax regulation and um, surveillance and uh, lots of weird 
social movements and artistic movements and spiritual groups and just sort of everything. You know, this was 1990 and there was a lot of weird stuff, uh, right? Like week, Weekly Weird World News was on the newsstands in the grocery stores and it had, you know, Bat Boy and flesh-eating bacteria and all this kind of great stuff. Yeah, that's great. Right? I mean, they were right about flushing bacteria, though. So, they were right. Well, they said yeah. that the bacteria were the size of rats. Well, that's awesome. <laughs> right? Which is even better <laughs> yeah. than the real thing, right? Okay. <laughs> yep. so, um, so the whole point of having a wide open setting that's based in the modern day is so that I could tell a player, just make up whatever you want. You don't have to learn about the setting. It's it's an island that you're going to visit. You're going to fly there is the first thing that happens to your character. So you don't even need to learn anything about the setting. It's the modern day. Uh, and you don't need to learn really anything about the rules because the way you create a character is freeform. There's no point by, you know, you, you never like try to find a combination between one cool ability and some cool power that gives you a bonus in combat. There's nothing like that. And so um, it was all about player agency. It was about players creating these really interesting and unusual characters and inventing the character's traits rather than choosing them from a list that I had created ahead of time. So to ask immediately, what did you do to... Did you build any kind of a setup for prodding the players in a certain direction? Anything to narrow their choices a little bit so that they weren't completely lost in a sea of infinite possibility? Well, so now you've jumped ahead three years to Everway. Um, okay. So, so with Over the Edge, no, there was like, it's just, you could, you do whatever. Now, I provided lists of examples, long lists of examples. As a game designer, as a role-playing game designer, I feel it is incumbent on the game designer to provide lots of good examples of what they're talking about. Because sometimes if the game designer has not come up with good examples, it's because the rule doesn't work. You, you could, if you wanted to, create your whole character just by looking at my examples and picking them. So you could narrow it down that way, no problem if you wanted to. But Catrice, uh, you have put your finger right on an issue that I noticed once I started running this game. You know, at first I was running it with the players that I knew already and, and they were all up for it. But, but there were times where uh, I found like at a convention, a player might seem daunted by creating, you know, whatever kind of character they want. And so three years later, 95, when I released Everway through, Wizards of the Coast, that game also has freeform character creation. But the first thing that you do is you look through a big pile of art cards that represent characters and scenes and from um, sort of all around the world, all sorts of different sort of cultures and backgrounds are represented there. And then you pick the things out of that pile of cards uh, that you want to represent something about your character, your character's background. And that is a way to address exactly, Catrice, what you pointed to is people want often some sort of direction rather than pulling something, you know, totally uh, whole cloth uh, or out of the air to mix a metaphor. So, um, but no, for, for over the edge, the default is, yeah, you just make it up from kind of whatever you, uh, whatever you want. Now, once you um, once you've completed a character, one of the th- things that you have as part of the character creation was 
you had some person that was important to you. And often that is a person that you were coming to the island to look for, or a person that you were coming to the island to meet, or a person that is out to get you and you're going to the island to get away from them or something. And so you would, in character creation, you would be creating for yourself sort of a direction for where you're taking the, the character in play. So, so that you're, so that's really speaking to allowing the player to decide motive. Exactly. Right. So again, that's player agency. Like what kind of game do you want? What kind of experience do you want your character to have? Now I've, um, I've changed that up a little with the new version. I have learned a lot about how to design role-playing games. And, and honestly, the industry has learned a lot about how to do freeform role-playing games in a way that, you know, I was sort of making stuff up and had very little to go on, both with Over the Edge and with Everway back in the 90s. But now there have been so many indie role-playing games and, you know, so many games that challenge the your preconceptions of how you create a character or um, that, that there's just a, a wealth of experience out there that's been distilled into uh, these unusual and interesting games. And so uh, I, it's still freeform, the 2019 version, uh, but I've changed it up a little. So for example, um, instead of having a, a flaw or uh, an important character, um, which, you know, like having a flaw, that sort of goes back to GURPS or champions. You know, I've got this thing that I'm bad at. And it, it, it's a very transactional uh, kind of um, factor or feature for a character. So what I change that into is uh, every character has a trouble. Mm -hmm. And that is the sort of interesting trouble that your character gets into. Right. right? So I don't know, in... Uh, in Scooby-Doo, you know, Shaggy always gets in trouble by wandering into the wrong place. Sure. Right? And, yep. and, so, and that drives the plot forward because now that he's in the wrong place, he gets chased by the monster or whatever, right? And so when you're creating your character in the new version, you decide what sort of trouble are you going to get into. Um, and it's the sort of trouble that maybe as characters – the characters at that table wish that that player would stop getting into trouble, but the players are all happy to see it because that's what moves the plot right. forward. So that's player agency again. What kind of what kind of trouble do you want your character to get into? And then that sort of um, it makes the player complicit in the danger or peril or errors that the character falls into, and right. then. And then it's fine, right? Like, oh, okay, yeah, you have gotten into trouble by, you know, I don't know, I had a, uh, a character who was a sort of a corrupt doctor and he liked to co collect weird tissue samples. Mm -hmm. And so if he, you know, if there was somebody who seemed really weird or deformed or mutated or whatever, that, that he would, would be drawn to that even if it got into, into trouble. And then if I get it, my character gets into trouble, well, hey, I've signed up for that. I can't blame the game master. Right, right, right. right. Yeah, that's actually, yeah. So that's allowing the player to say, like, this is the hook I want you to lead me yes. down the story that's right. with. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And in Over the Edge, uh, the characters are so streamlined that um, literally you can have one sheet of paper that uh, you can record all the characters at the table on. And so every player can have this little sheet 
that describes what every other character is capable of doing and what every other character's trouble is. Mm-hmm. And so then they can riff off each other. Like I'm, instead of just looking at my character sheet about what I'm doing, right. I'm looking at the party sheet of what the whole party is up to. And when somebody is sort of in spotlight, everyone else can look at their character, that person's character and see what would be interesting to uh, riff off of, or what would be an interesting suggestion to make, or how can you send trouble that character's way? Yeah. So where do you, so when you're, when you're doing that, where's the appropriate place to put the carrot, you know, Um, where's, where do you drop that incentive into the game? No, because like I, when, when I'm doing it in my game, I put it, I say like, here's what you get experience for. You know, right, uh, right. Uh, you're following your calling. Like, so I have the players choose a calling as a group. That's the way the reason they're all together. And then right. they have a personal okay. calling. That makes sense. Yep. They have personal calling that's like, here's my separate thing. And then uh, the other two aspects of a character are their loss and their coping mechanism. It's a post apocalyptic game. Everybody sure. lost something during the thing. And so there's something they're pining for, and there's a way that they cope. Oh, that's neat. And yeah. so, so that's the thrust forward. They're, they have these three. I, I give them three motivations starting yeah. out and then like something they use to uh, that that's a detriment, you know, they, they cope in an unhealthy right. way. That's, that's the, the aim. Of right. It. I see. Right. Yeah. Sure. And then, and then it sounds like you reward them with experience points for. Correct. Yeah. So if, if they, you, you know, if uh, they do something in the scene where like um, they describe a scene of loss uh, that reminds them of what they lost, then that's good enough to get. It's just, you know, I, I'm in- encouraging them to color. Right. In a way, uh, right. with an experience point. And then, and coping is like when it causes you trouble, you know, when you do it yeah. in such a way that you lose something, then you get the XP because like, yeah. and you know, you can think of it as like a just modeling the psychological reward system humans have of like. That's right. So, yeah. Yeah. So, um, one of the things I coach game masters to do mm-hmm. when they are setting out on a new story arc, um, whether uh, and maybe that's all new characters have been created for that story arc, or maybe characters are being repeated for a story arc or, or whatever. But when, they, but when there's a new story arc uh, being generated, the game masters coach to create sort of a foil, a game master character that corresponds to each other uh, player character. Mm. And so that might be exactly the sort of person that is going to provoke the character to get into trouble, or it's going to be um, the, the sort of the, the character that is going to be literally like a rival or even an enemy based on the character's background. And so, um, and I, you know, I think I stole that from Luke Crane in uh, Burning Wheel. Um, but it's so the idea is that you get the game master to build that stuff into the campaign arc from the very beginning. And then, um, you know, when, when the time is right, the, you, you bring that forward and, you know, other people are probably the most interesting part of anybody's life and in drama, right? It's other people that are yeah. the most interesting thing for a character to interact with. Uh, and so it's it's pretty easy to get action going by pulling these non-player characters into the uh, into the plot. And um, 
over the edge plays a little less transactional. Like you don't gain incremental experience points. Uh, you'll either get um, sort of expanded abilities or specialties at the end of a short story arc or um, after, if it's a long story arc, maybe uh, after some sort of milestone gets reached that characters sort of uh, each get a, uh, an added specialty to improve their abilities and so forth. But it's not, um, it's not as detailed as what you were describing, like pro providing experience points for individual actions. It's more like you get the players to buy in on what they are going to do. And then um, it's, it's sort of natural for them uh, to, to play along when the, when the opportunity arises. Yeah. That's what we'd hope. Right. I mean, right. Um, you know, so, they're, they're, well, one of the interesting things about that is so like, um, in my system, one of the things I ripped off of, uh, the new world of darkness, which I think has a really good experience point system is the shared XP pool idea. Okay. And that, what, what they do with that one is that what it seems to do, uh, is it, uh, allows, uh, the spotlight not like the spotlight hogs, but just, you know, the more vocal players to um, not have a detrimental effect on the players that maybe you're not as vocal. And uh, yeah, that, that experience system has been working really well uh, in my play mean, Yeah. So that's rather than with uh, individual experience awards, it's for exactly. the group sort of, yeah. yeah. So that's what we do in 13th age. And that's kind right, of what exactly. I was doing yep. the whole time. And when I was running my third edition campaign, that was one of the ways that, uh, you know, I mean, it, that's, it's all, even third edition, it's set up, you're expecting everyone to split the experience equal. Right. Like we specifically did away with the, the stuff that was in second edition where the cleric gets experience points for turning undead. Right. And the fighter gets experience points for defeating people or whatever. And that seemed like a good idea at the time. Mm -hmm. But then it, what it did is it made the players not agree on what they wanted to do. And as, I mean, I used to, I think experience points for killing characters was stupid, right? Just like I used to think hit points were stupid. But, um, you know, back in sort of my RuneQuest days, right, where you would get literally, I get experience with using my broadsword. I get experience with using my broadsword in my left <laughs> hand. I get experience with parrying with my broadsword, right? Like, oh, my goodness, that was, um, but super realistic, but just slowed things down and, Right, and the idea of you are all in a group, you are all gonna try to do the same thing, you're all gonna try to defeat monsters and you're all gonna get experience points for it and you're all right. gonna split it evenly. That just, um, uh, yeah, I think that's a, that's a good idea. So, you know, in third edition, you, you split the experience points evenly, but someone who shows up more often is gonna uh, pull out ahead. And the way I ran it for my campaign was, you know, whatever, there's one guy who, didn't show up as often. We don't want to punish the guy. Right, exactly. Right, And so we, we just had, you had a group uh, level. Like, the what level mm -hmm. is the group at? And that just seemed to work. Yeah, I agree. I mean, that was one of the first, actually, that was one of the first hacks, I, I mean, hacks, quote unquote, of the of D, D I did was like, it's like, oh, I think this works better if we just say, you know, yeah. counted this group XP and, yeah. and everybody levels at the same time rather than have somebody like straggle behind because. That's right. I mean, if you're going to do organized play, right, like with Living Greyhawk or something like that, then you do sort of need each character to be individually tracked, right, with 
their individual treasure and their individual experience. And so you can see why you would want that to be the default rule written into the game. But yeah, yeah, we didn't play it that way. Right. That's interesting. So what, like, okay, so, okay, so here's some, here's something I kind of, I would have asked, I wanted to ask you for a while. Um, yeah. Or somebody. Yeah. Like, so uh, the, the lessons you took away from Over the Edge and, and Ars Magica and um, uh, Everway, what was there, what kind of impediment was there to putting that kind of like story-driven and motive-driven play into into D third edition because it seems to me like those things would have been a natural evolution was it just seen as too radical at the time or or like too away from the brand or like this so that's a really good question and i know a lot of the people who knew my earlier work were surprised that i ended up being the lead designer on a game system that ended up being sort of so crunchy uh and adventure oriented um so the big thing we were trying to do with third edition, and I think it was a really good idea, and I, I think the success of third edition proved that out, is we were trying to get people to play the same way again. So second edition had sort of said, you can play any kind of way. Here's a book on the historical Romans. Here's a horror setting. Here's a real world variant on the horror setting. And then I think, I think there was a variant on the variant of the horror setting. And so, um, you know, here's, here's a planar setting, uh, but it's not a high power setting like you might think. Um, and, and that's Planescape. And here's a sort of high power setting where everyone's stats are higher and everyone has a psychic power. That's right. Dark Sun. Yeah. Oh, but, you know, you fight with sticks and bones and, you know. So it's not really a high power setting after all. And it's like, there's all these sort of different ways to play. And what it meant was the audience was fragmented and there was right. no like one product that everybody needed to get. Like if you were playing in Ethos in Dark Sun, you could not use the Elf Splat book, the you know, Elven, you know, because Elves are different right. there. And that was cool, but it didn't help the line any. And so, we decided we really wanted to focus on um we we called it uh kicking open the door with style mm. so so that the the core experience is going to be adventuring because that's something everyone can understand and that's something that we can really write a book where we know we'll be able to deliver that experience to the players but we want you to be able to do it with style uh we we want you to still feel like you have a real character who has a you know, a life and a background and a, maybe a personality and all that stuff. And so um, it's, it's role-playing, uh, but role-playing adventurers, right? And so that was super successful. Um, I did try to put a little, little bit of uh, sort of more storytelling material in. Like my favorite bit in the third edition player's handbook is the alignment section where all three good alignments and all three neutral alignments are described as the best alignment. Right. And then there's a description of why this one is the best alignment. And so that's a, that's a, just a hint of kind of the moral relativism or cosmic relativism that you get in like the world of Glorantha, where if you worship the sun God, you see the universe and the history in a whole different way from if you worship the storm God. Right. Right. 
And so this was, if you're lawful good, you think you that's the best alignment, and here's why. And if you're chaotic neutral, you think that's the best alignment, and here's why. And, and so um, I did try to get across more, more of the story stuff that would be uh, exciting and, and encourage people to get into it. So like in second edition, the description of lawful neutral was sort of like, your life sucks. You know, you're like a soldier who has to do what they're told and you have no choices. Well, who wants to be lawful neutral, right. right? So I had to come up with lawful neutral is the best alignment and here's why. So you could play lawful neutral and really get into it, right? And like halflings used to be described as, well, halflings like to stay at home and eat two breakfasts. Right. That's great. Well, why am I adventuring, right? And so halflings were transformed and I, I love the line. Halflings prefer trouble to boredom. Yeah. You know? And it was just like, if you read the halfling description, you get a sense of what kind of fun you're going to have if you play a halfling. Yeah. And if that's the kind of fun you want, you play a halfling. And and so I did try to inject a sort of a story-oriented, character-oriented element into the game. But but boy, it's a it was really about adventuring. And we talked about in the future, we would do the highfalutin book of role-playing where we would you know, <laughs> do all the fancy stuff about free-form story whatever and you know really sort of because you know monty's like that too i'm like that we would have loved to do uh something that's way more free-form it just never happened right. it would have been a great fourth book in the in the it, it probably would have been yeah that's right but but remember we i don't think we would have done it as the fourth book because we wanted to establish one way to play so that everyone, and obviously once you start playing that way, you can then diverge off to whatever. But we wanted a core experience where everyone felt like D&D is back. We're playing D&D again. Mm -hmm. And um, and I can go play D&D in someone else's campaign. Or I can go right. to uh, play at a convention and I know what I'm going to get. Right. Did you, um, did, did were you ever concerned that like, by designing this core experience of of you know the biggest name in yeah. in role playing that you yeah. were sort of setting up some players with with uh, a different expectation of what role playing like could be that you know because a lot of what I've encountered um, where sort of people will have this expectation about. Uh, you know, uh, we'll come to yeah. a table of vampire or something like that with a very D and D expectation. You know, that yeah. that's how role yeah. playing goes. Yeah. So was that ever a concern? So I was, um, I was a little concerned about that. And in fact, in 1999, when I finished the player's handbook, uh, which was going to then release the following year, I set out to start a, a third edition campaign to find out whether I liked the game that I had. And <laughs> I, like, like we had created the game for the fan base not for us right or like if i created the game for me it would have been a lot more like everway or over the edge or something right and so i wanted to know is is this game not just good for the fan base at large but does it does it have what i am can enjoy in a role-playing game uh, and I tell you, we had the best D&D &D campaign in my history. It was like 
the D&D campaign that when I was a teenager, I wished I could have pulled off. Hmm. It was like the, the D&D campaign that I thought the, the older kids at the college were playing. And now I was finally playing it. Um, and so, yeah, it, it really did work. I felt like the game. Now, that's, that's me and my players, right? Sure, sure. You know, if I had been 12, I probably would not have been able to pull off the greatest campaign that I had ever played or whatever. Um, but yeah, this campaign is still legendary in my uh, group of players. I still play regularly with most of the people who were started that campaign wow. 20 years ago. Like we finished that campaign a long time ago. We're still together, but boy, that is still the touchstone campaign for our experience. And uh, yeah, the characters went from fifth to 20th level and the, the final battle was the literally the battle at the end of the world where the forces of evil and good or to you know variously defined uh met and uh and it was amazing i feel like there was enough story it baked into the the setting to inspire people to think of stuff and then you know i've got game designers in my group like rob hainso he was the lead designer on fourth and he was the lead actually on 13th age. Um, and then I've got guys who are marketers, right? So they make their living by being clever and writing stuff. And so, you know, it, it really wasn't a, a, an amazing campaign. Um, yeah, that actually does bring up a bit of a question that I'd have for you. Yeah, then, yeah. Because you noted that it you had like a bunch of really creative and yeah. interesting people to work with here. That's right. And we do know that in role-playing, like a large part of how interesting the game is yeah. comes down to the players and That's the right. right. GM or whatever. That's right. So how would you go about trying to set up the game itself from a design perspective to give the players and the GM and such the tools to be able to basically play the game to the extent that they want to play if they had never actually played one before. Are you, are you meaning specifically Dungeons and Dragons or you mean one of my other games like they're like over the edge? Like I would actually say like in general, and I suppose for D and D almost as a separate thing because your other games diverge pretty yeah. wildly from yeah. D D. That's right. That is right. So it would it would have honestly been pretty interesting if we had um ever done that book of high fluten role playing to sort of show people how to do the next thing and you know show people how to use the core books as your touchstone and then to go off in one direction or the other. Um, and the, the other possibility was, um, uh, if we had been able to do a new setting. So I think Eberron kind of got there, right? Like, yeah. um, you know, Eberron is, was a new setting for third edition and sort of it dialed back kind of the monsters and the big magic items and dialed up, you know, the politics and the. Um, intrigue intrigue moral ambivalence sort of room mm -hmm. for ambiguity and and so um uh, i think a, a good setting would have done that i was uh 
I was interested in doing just a no, no excuses, higher powered setting, right? Like Dark Sun was high powered in some ways, but low powered in others. Landscape was seemed high powered, but no, you were just a first level character, and they they sort of took pains to to say, no, you're, it's not high powered, it's regular powered. I was like, well, how how about like just give the people what they want? Like, how about just have uh, uh, like you know, the Arduin grimoire from Dave Hargrave back in the 70s and early 80s. That was sort of like Dungeons and Dragons, but with lasers and <laughs> higher powered spells and super demons and planes and runes and just all sorts of crazy stuff, right? So um, uh, we we never did that uh, setting, but I would have, the, my pitch was there would be a bunch of role-playing stuff involved with it like you would you would pick a faction or or um some group to be involved with and then that would give you powers but you would feel like you were role playing like you were getting these bonuses because you're a member of uh the elite emerald uh uh circle or whatever and so Role players would like it because it had role playing elements, and everyone would like it because their numbers would be higher than <laughs> yeah. a standard Greyhound campaign, right? And then, and then you would people wouldn't look down their noses at the bonuses because they would all be part of sort of a role playing element. And that was that was m my suggestion for how you how you get more role playing and more story is yeah you pay people with magical bonuses and you know cooler yeah. powers and then also uh sort of weave that into the setting and the, and the background yeah i completely agree i mean that's that's definitely where i've gone with my game my, my you know one of my goals was to make a setting and game such that if you sat down and looked at any particular table you couldn't tell the person that showed up to power game from the person who showed up to play their character. Okay. Like you right. there should be no gap there. Yeah. You know? That's that's a really interesting way to put it. Now, honestly, if you ask how how would I have done Dungeons and Dragons to make it more story oriented, you can really just look at 13. Right, age. exactly. Yeah. Which is, is you know, one of the one of my go-to touchstones for my yeah. game. I mean, like the combat in my game is very much I mean, it it takes it's a very streamlined fourth edition, you know, yeah. so it's a, it's yeah. a different like fork from for yep. 13th age where I, I kept right. the relative um, movement, whereas 13th age uses yes. the, the abstracted uh, positioning. Yep. Um, but I, I, I dig a little bit of tactile movement. So I, the, the, all my numbers sure. are way smaller. And, um, but okay. interestingly, right. also my characters are troops. They are, you are a uh, leader of a squad of guys. Oh, interesting. And yeah. so I like this, you know, it's kind of like a squad to squad based well, it's almost a, people have described it as like a mini war game. Yeah, inside. that's kind of neat. Yeah, I, it, well, it's working so far, so we'll see. We'll see how it washes out. <laughs> um, uh, I'm hoping. I'm hoping. To, I was hoping to get a Kickstarter done in October, but it looks like it's. I haven't gotten to this next stage of playtesting yet, so I might may have to push. But we'll yeah, see. you got to know what you're doing before you hit that Kickstarter. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. For and sure. you may start over again by October. Yeah, which I, yeah, that, this is the third humongous overhaul where I burned everything to the ground and started again. So yeah, you, you got to do that. Yep, hundred percent. So on on the topic of bringing more story to Dungeons and Dragons, 
Mm-hmm. I don't I don't have anything to announce yet, but um, there's a possibility that I will rework some of the story stuff that you see in 13th Age and uh, do that as a 5e supplement where you can you don't have to switch to 13th Age to get the benefit of some of the stuff that we've learned. And you can just do that as a uh, as, as a 5e product. That was one of the things I really liked about 13th Age, actually, was how portable some of those ideas were. So like the portable. one unique thing, the one unique yep. thing, the icons, like, yep. yeah. And if you talk about player agency, right, that, it's got it in spades. Yeah, and that's one of the things that attracted me to it initially, this idea of, like, uh, you know, Douglas Adams called it the um, well-defined areas of doubt and uncertainty. Okay, yeah. <laughs> where, <laughs> where uh, uh, you know, you leave big gaps, like you say, here's here's X and here's Y. And then in between you sorted out, you know? Yes. Uh, yeah. And, and that's, that was something I was like, Oh, right. Cause if you ha- have the players do that, then they're automatically interested in it because they came yes. up with it. So like they yes. know what they want. So just ask them like, why the hell a middleman? Like, yeah. You know, and yeah. that was a bit of a revelation for me. Like uh, it's just, yeah, you can cut out like the guesswork. Kind of makes sense. You kind of need a spot on a map that just says "Here, there be dragons." Yeah, yeah, right. And where and where you know that that area is not going to get written up in the next supplement, and so mm-hmm. right, you really are free to to work on that. So I remember um, the first time I started messing around with the one unique thing concept was it's a, a really simple version of D anD D that I was hacking out just before rob and i started working on 13th age Mm -hmm. and the and instead of inventing anything about your character the the version of the one unique thing i was using was you can invent something about your class like what oh cool okay tell us about what your Mm -hmm. class is like in this world and so peter atkinson was playing and he was a wizard and he got a sort of a sly grin and he said wizards can never be trusted and and so that's different from saying you can't trust me right right it's like saying oh like it's it's a thing that people know about wizards in general and does it apply to me in particular maybe maybe not maybe it's just a stereotype but that ability for him to define not just what his wizard is like but what wizards are like Mm -hmm. then gave his character a special context that he could never have had if I didn't open up that creative process to the player to let them define things that are related to their character, but are beyond what their character is or is not. Yeah. Letting the players mess about with the GM's toolkit in like doing world building, I think is a, you know, a really good idea provided like you can prompt them in the right way, because I feel like, like Kat was saying earlier about like the infinity of choices, right? Once you start world building, like, There's no there's no way to frame all of it because you just you can just put a bigger frame around it like that's like, right oh but what's outside this and what's outside this and you you go for but I think with like the, the like the strong prompting of like tell me something about your class or you know right. what's your one unique thing what what do people yes. notice about you that's strange or what do you hide from people that you yeah know, uh, I I th- those things. I love building that kind of stuff into games because yeah. for the, that exact reason because the players invested then. Yeah, that's right. And that's one of the things, those questions that you brought up as examples, those are the sorts of things that are 
a formal part of the character creation process and the character development process in Over the Edge. And this is just an idea I stole for myself. It was from Everway, where players ask other players questions about their characters. Mm. So you can say things like, what's the thing that your character is afraid of that other people are not as afraid of? Or you can ask questions of the player that the character doesn't know. Like you can say, what's something that your character does not understand about themselves? Hmm. And that, and the, the character, of course, can't answer that in character, but the player can, like from the godlike view, look down on their character and go, Thordok the Barbarian uh, doesn't realize how much he loves his friends. That also provides inner conflict for the character as well. Exactly, exactly. An inner conflict is an interesting thing. One of the things that I have seen is that... Uh, players often, if they're transactionally trying to win a scene, like they're trying to play smart or they're trying to like not say the wrong thing or not do the wrong thing in a social situation. Well, kind of doing the wrong thing is interesting, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, I had a campaign where half of the fun was that you would be in this very hidebound culture where there were very strict expectations of everybody and you had to navigate this sort of um, oppressive culture that you were stuck in. Then the other half is that you would go into the dungeon and you would cut loose and vet your frustrations and destroy things and whatever. And, but, but, but half of it, so this was Empire of the Petal Throne setting, the Soliani, Tecumel is the Tecumel, planet yeah. and the Soliani the culture. And um, so I was just sort of upping it, right? Like, those two features appear in the game and I was like turning those both up. So it was more hidebound and more violent. Um, But what that meant was the people, the player characters would not do the things that they wanted to do. And so I developed a rule called the if only rule, um, which was at every session, every social session where you're above ground and have to obey all the etiquette, every player was expected at one point to say, if only it weren't for these rules, I would, right? I would mm-hmm. run over there and beat the snot out of that person because I don't like the way they're treating their animals. I can't right. do it, but huh. boy, that's what I wish I would do. And so then you have some player agency where you're not, const- I mean, you are constrained to not go beat up some random noble because they're being a, a shithead. Mm-hmm. But you're still free to say, I wish, that's what I wish I could do. I wish I could go over and, and sh- beat that little fop up and show him who's boss and show him what it's like to be bullied or whatever. Right. And that allows players to freely imagine what their character would do without actually acting it out and, and then sort of dis- disrupting things. And then I use that again and over the edge, you know, like, okay, you're – you're having a confrontation with someone that, and you know that they are secretly out to get you, but they don't know that, so you have to hide it. Well, what's going, what do you wish you could do in this situation? Like, obviously, you're going to play your cards close to your vest, mm. but what do you wish you could do? That's interesting. Like, gives you that insight to the internal conflict, just like Kat was saying. Like, that's, mm. that's interesting. And you see that in drama, yeah. right? Where you know that 
the character wants to do one thing and isn't, and that's kind of fun to watch, and it's fun to watch at the table. Huh. That's interesting because like it's a separate, like that's one extra step removed exactly. from role playing. So you know you you're imagining yourself as this character, and like typically what happens is you sort of imagine how this character acts, and the character acts that way. That's right. And and then you know saying pulling back into like I don't know some weird half meta state in between the yeah. player's desires and the character's desires. You put this barrier, this interspurt, like this this uh, yeah thing where you go like oh i i wish i could but for only x and then what's interesting about that also is like you're you're giving the character a little bit of that world building yes uh thing again where you say like what's the constraint here and then we're going to carry that constraint forward presumably into the fiction of the world yeah that's hmm. and and it's super easy to see that in fiction right you can see into the main character's head all the time about what they wish they could do or what they're worried about that that doesn't show hmm those are some of the best moments too. Those are it's that internal conflict that you brought up, Kat. Yeah, that's the, that's that's interesting, right? Like I'm actually thinking of, I think it was Coventry in World War II. There was a thing where they had decrypted like the German codes, and they knew that the city was going to get bombed, right? And they couldn't evacuate it because it would be playing their hand. That's right. It's like you have to sacrifice a whole city of people yeah. to win the war. And it's yeah. like, that's the kind of decision that's like, oh, that's <laughs> yeah. not the kind of decision you want to make. But right. it's like, that is the perfect place to put a character. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, this conversation is prompting now. Well, shit, here comes another rewrite. God damn it. <laughs> 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 but, but, um, <laughs> But it's like no, because my 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 thread system that I've just been I've been cracking it like this week like has is is a is a story generation mechanic. Like I'm I'm seeing a place like where you could ask a question like this, like what do the characters wish they could do about this, yes. but like they can't, and yeah. that 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 prompts the creation of obstacle yeah. and one of the characters own devising, so they know it's going to be one like oh it's significant because X. And you got that world building injection again, you know, that's, yeah. yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm, that's notes. Boom. <laughs> we keep talking about player agency in the sense of giving them things that they can add into the world themselves as well. Right. Yeah. So there's a few different ways you can go about doing that. For example, uh, what Jonathan had actually mentioned himself was the thing of adding in uh, something related to your class or your character or something directly related to them. Yeah. Uh, another one that a uh, group that I've played with is each of the players create their own city or country on yep. the planet. And anytime somebody goes to that area, they become the de facto GM. Yep. There's other ones that I've seen that sometimes work, sometimes don't. Like we played a game with a few of the other co-hosts here of Monster Hearts. And one of the things that it had you do was you created other NPCs. And what actually ended up happening was some of us actually really enjoyed making the other NPCs. And one of the players was sick of it and actually just left the game because they were like, I don't want to make a bunch of NPCs for 
this and they don't really matter to me. I don't want to do it at all. So where do you think is like the ideal spot for this? Like it, it definitely seems to change between individual players. Yeah. Hmm. Well, that's, that's a, an interesting point. Like everybody is different. So while some people would really groove on inventing NPCs, apparently some people don't care for it at all. I, I, Offhand, I would have to say that the more closely something is related to one's own character, the more happy a player is going to be to take on that mm -hmm. narrative burden. And so, mm -hmm. right, like if, if the NPC you're creating is, you know, tell us about your family, who are your family members, or, you know, who are your childhood friends, then that seems kind of part of character creation writ large, right? Like you're you're expanding your personal character's background. Yeah. And that maybe seems more more in keeping with what people expect uh to do in a in a role playing game. Yeah. I mean like yeah, yeah GURPS had that like early on, like where they had like dependents, right? Where like yeah. dependents could show up and then you had this network, but he gave you points for it. So it just all, you know, all it depended. It was make you stronger and better able to swing. That's, that's, that's right. That's right. <laughs> well, if you feel like you're getting an advantage of it. Yeah. 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 Again, it comes back to what you were saying earlier, that if you reward players for doing this, you make them stronger and it yeah. happens to also benefit their story. Then That's right. That's right. So if you look at the first and second editions of Ars Magica, you can see uh, a sort of a transition to a more story-oriented story -oriented version of uh, character creation. So you've got virtues and flaws, which are a lot like advantages and disadvantages mm -hmm. in you know, a lot of games. And they have, have point values. And so it's, it is very sort of point by in that way. And in the first edition, um, they, they tended to be more GURPS-like, sort of more transactional um, and, and more effect-oriented. And then in the second edition, they became more story-oriented, right. right? And so, um, like, you become haunted by a ghost, and then part of the fun of that is this ghost has a personality that you're going to interact with that has nothing to do with giving you a bonus or giving you a penalty. And I think that that was, that was really successful. It was where we felt like we had got a better handle on what we were trying to do uh, with the game, but it, but it was move, move from the more, this is, this is a points thing to this is a story thing with points. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. I mean, that's, that's something we've discussed on this, on this podcast a couple of times, like this idea of viewing RPGs as engines that create a story yeah that where you you feed there's player input right and then it goes through some yeah. mechanic which you know collects together in a dynamic which spits out a result which is then interpreted and then the result like the string of those interpretations forms a tale in hindsight and you've got yeah. this product of a, of a story at the end and an experience while it's going on as well and from my perspective on that it's like there's a way to analyze games from the perspective of the kind of story they output and not just 
their mechanics and how their dynamics interact and what aesthetic they produce, but like what, how, how, where, where it puts the incentives to, to, for the players to act in a particular way. Yeah. 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 I, I had a great experience with um, my life with master by Paul Sega. I think you pronounce his name, but then when the Diana Jones award back in 2000 and I don't know, four or whatever, and it has a very, formal structure for how things are going to work. And you know that like at the conclusion of this little scene that you play out, you're going to make this kind of dice roll and you're going to get either this kind of result or that kind of result. And, um, and how you get to the conclusion mm -hmm. is, is not, does, does not have a bearing on the numbers of that dice throw. So for a great example, uh, there was a, sort of an ape-like Igor character. All the characters are sort of Igor. Right. Minions. <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah. exactly, of this wicked master. Um, and he's in love with the, I don't know, the milkmaid or whatever. <laughs> um, and he has to go steal a snake uh, for the master. And on his way back, he wants to climb a tree and spy on the milkmaid. And... <laughs> Peter, Ad Peter Atkinson's character said, I'll, I'm just going to drop the snake in the bag at the bottom of the tree and I'll climb the tree. Uh -huh. Well, if he had been playing transactionally for points, mm -hmm. he would have brought that snake with him. Right? right. But, but because he knows this is all about coming to a dramatic point and rolling those dice to see what happens. Right. Right. It, it's kind of cool to leave the snake there stupidly mm -hmm. so that when the milkmaid comes by, she uh, opens the bag wondering what's in it or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. And then he's got to drop down and save her from the snake, but scare her at the same time. And, and that, boy, when he did that, it clicked for me that if you, if you take the pressure off the player from like, you, you have to succeed at this and you need right. every bonus that you can get and you have to do everything smart or else things might go badly for you. If you ease up on that, and say, play this with style and play this how you like, and then we'll dice out and we'll just see how it turns out. Then the player is, has the freedom to sort of do things that are more interesting, just like characters do all the time in fiction or, right. or movies. I've definitely yeah. learned that myself. I've been like really stressing the concept of, well, give the players enough rope to hang themselves. They'll yes. do something far more interesting than the dice will. Yeah. Yeah, they'll do something a lot dumber than the dice will. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's that's the that's the entertaining thing. Like the the you know where the apocalypse world or blades in the dark has that principle of play to find out, right? So right. Did that when when that was codified? That wasn't. I mean, that was I think with apocalypse world or or maybe even dogs in the vineyard. Yeah. Um. It did that. Has that principle carried forward? Like obviously, over the edge is embodies yeah. that principle without naming it. Totally, uh, totally does, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and the way that I put that into Over the Edge is that um, failure has to be possible, mm. right? So so Dungeons and Dragons, we, we set it up, it's kind of like going through school. Right. You know, when you start out in first grade and you just do the work day in and day out, you'll have some ups and downs. But eventually you get to second grade and you do the mm. work and then you'll get to third grade and eventually right, you'll right. graduate, right? Like it, the, the numbers are all set up so that in general, players are going to win every fight. 
And if mm-hmm. things go bad, then the spellcaster has these daily abilities that they can right. just unleash to get everyone out of the jam. And then you have to sleep in the dungeon or whatever to get your spells back. But you, you know, you've always got this sort of back pocket stuff. And so, um, I, I also, I was talking with someone at Gen Con, I don't know, two years ago, and they were talking about the game that they run or whatever. Uh, and they said something like, um, you know, and of course, if the dice don't give me, if, if the dice turn out wrong, well, we'll just ignore them. You know, and I, I, as the game master, will fudge things. Like if they are, if I want them to win this fight, they're not going to lose this fight. Right, right, exactly. Well, then I, I didn't want to be snotty, so I didn't say, why are you rolling all those dice? Dice then, right. Yeah, that's generally <laughs> right. the break you get between like the osr people and a lot exactly. of the new narrative games exactly because the osr that's is right. like that's right why bother rolling a die if you're not going to use it right and so so i embody that spirit that sort of brutal spirit from osr but in a storytelling setting where you you want to set people up with things that they can fail at like that's that's interesting and so um, you might have how, how well a character fares in a fight. You might determine that with a single throw of the dice mm-hmm. and you throw it on the table in front of everyone. And it's the player throwing the dice. So th- there's no fudging, right? Like th- there it is. And gosh, we had a, we had a character who uh, he, he was literally the shadow of a man. Like he, he was uh, like one seventh of uh, a self-help book author who had been sort of somehow severed from his uh, main self and now was sort of a, a fake self trying to cobble together an identity, right? So that was a lot of fun. Um, but he made this huge campaign to win over the heart of this woman that would be if he managed to have a real relationship with her, it had been the first real person to person relationship he had had rather than always being, you know, being this author with a character and whatever. Right. And so we play out the whole scene and all the stuff that he's doing and he sets this whole thing up and then he sort of makes his pitch in front of everybody uh, in front of this big, like uh, reading where his work is being read and, and, um, and he throws the dice and he misses by one. <laughs> and and we're all just crestfallen for the guy. It's like, oh, you oh, you tried so hard. Right. And uh, but you failed. Like, uh, and so boy, and that's apocalypse world says, you know, mm-hmm. things matter, right? Yeah. And so it wasn't like, oh, she's unconvinced, throw the dice again, maybe you'll get better luck next time, right? It was, okay, well, no, she, you know, turns away from you publicly, heads off, joins a cult <laughs> where pleasure and sex are not allowed and, you know, you, you've lost her and now to get her back becomes just even much bigger right. thing. But because he was able to fail, that, I mean, no, none of us wanted him to fail, but we all wanted him to be able to fail. Right. And I think that merits a discussion between the um, the difference between fail and fail state, because like I f- I feel like games like like D and D right th- those yeah. things are synonymous where 
failure enters into a fail state of the game and you have to have like a mechanical patch to get you out of like resurrection or you know that's right um but like it it enters a fail state and whereas games where failure doesn't equate to a fail state where the game can keep going after the failure and right like in fiction all the time failure you keep going when after failure yeah yeah Yeah. Yeah, i also get the feeling that you shouldn't just be able to fail like at every single thing it's that you should if you're going to have something that you can fail at it should be something that it's reasonable to fail at and it should be that if you're not at risk of failure then you probably shouldn't be doing it it's more right. so or, if you want right. a challenge do challenging things right. right and there's and there's plenty of stuff that you can just do right like you just don't like in in OSR uh, and sort of Call of Cthulhu, the traditional mm-hmm. Call of Cthulhu, whatever. Anytime you try to do something, you then have to roll the dice to see whether you succeed at what you're trying to do. Right. Right. Like that's just that that's the way it is. Like making a decision to do something is not oh, interesting. Enough. Let me push back on that a little yeah. bit from the OSR yeah. perspective because I've had people explain this to me. Oh, go ahead. You're supposed to say you're well because I actually agree with you, but let me just throw yeah. out the opposing argument. Yeah. What you're supposed to do is like describe in detail like so so some of the osr people will say like you're supposed to describe in detail you're searching you're actually supposed to roll for it until it's like it comes to a head almost where yeah. where it could go either way randomly but you're supposed to say oh i check behind the statue and like i run my fingers under the desk or um you know i poke the the, the tile in front of me like 15 feet away with the pole or they want you to describe what's going on and then at some point but that's I agree that I also hear that other perspective where it's like, you know, make a traps roll, then make a listen at the door roll, then yeah. make a bend bar roll and make, you know. Right. So yeah. but what do you think about that other perspective uh, where it's like, describe what you do up until X and then. So, you know, so with over the edge, a lot of the times there is a, um, it, it sort of works that way. There's going to be a role that's going to determine how you do. Mm-hmm. Right. And so um, you can you can sort of have an interaction for a while and then one role determines how that turns out rather than like like you might say, I'm going to try to sneak into that house and see if I can find any mm-hmm. any results. Right. Right. Um, and then uh, the player might narrate what they're doing until they get to a point where okay, this would be the interesting point where things can go one way or another. Now we roll right. to see what happens. Yeah. And then even after that roll, there's still some, you then kind of narrate how that turns out, right? Right. Like, um, so so if you roll the dice and you know that you are going to um, fail to uh, find what you're looking for in here, you we'll still sort of narrate out, well, what does it look like as you fail? Like, what are you doing? And maybe the player makes up the reason that they fail or the game master does or whatever, but it is, it it comes down to one throw of the dice, which is, if you go back to the 92 over the edge, it really was like Call of Cthulhu, where you dice for everything. Oh, you're going to climb the wall? Okay, roll to climb the wall. Oh, you didn't do it. You want to try again? Okay, now you climb the wall. Okay, now you're going to try to move silently. You're going to move silently. Mm-hmm. Roll, you're going to make move silently checks every time you move. 
because (laughs) there's nobody listening, but you don't know that. So the game master is psyching you out. It's just a slow process of rolling dice. Right. And so, um, it was Gary Gygax's Gord the Rogue book. He had a he had a choose your own adventure where Gord the Rogue is climbing a tower or something, and they get to one point in the tower where there's a loose rock, and that's where you roll to see whether you fall or not. Mm-hmm. And I thought that's not right. That's not how D and D works. You've got to roll every twenty feet or whatever it is. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. It, it would have been possible for him to fall before he got to the loose rock or after he got to the loose rock. Why is that the only one place you can fall? Well, because right. dramatically that's what's cool. Right? Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah. so now all these years later, it's like, Oh, he was right. It's a, you know, what, <laughs> what, what he wrote in D and D didn't ne- maybe necessarily work, but what he wrote in this choose your own adventure path works, which is get to the crux of deciding how things are going to go. You're either going to get, you're either going to succeed or fail and roll for that when it's at an interesting point. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think the first time I encountered that idea was probably in burning wheel where it was like that, that, you know, let it ride idea where, where you, you know, this role is representing your best effort. uh, And, and we're just going to play it out, you know, and that was, but that was another game where they had a lot of ways to mitigate failure, you know, have have a failure without turning it into a fail state. Yes, that's, that's right. And that's another important uh, sort of important advance that role-playing games have made since, you know, the Call of Cthulhu thing where, oh, you know, you yeah you missed your search check and now you can never find the clue and now you can never get to the haunted house and now you can never progress. Exactly. And, that you know, that's what, like, the, the Trail of Cthulhu and, and Gumshoe were, like, all about, like, okay, it's not whether right. you find the clue. Like, that's, yeah. let's just assume that happens, but a good evolution, I think, yeah. Right. And, and I try to... Um, what I coach the game master to do in Over the Edge is in, instead of questioning whether the player's choice matters, make the player's choice matter, the character's choice, right? Mm-hmm. So um, in, in my campaign, there was a, a sort of an avant-garde fringe science neuroscientist, and she tried to persuade another professor at the veterinary school to... Um, you know, collaborate with her and the kind of the call of Cthulhu way to do it would be like, make a charisma check or make a persuasion check. Right. But it's like, actually it's more interesting to deal with the consequences of working with this person. Yeah. Right. So you want to work with this person? Fine. That's great. And if we're going to roll dice, it's going to be how good is the collaboration? Do you regret the collaboration? Do great things come of the collaboration? That's what's interesting. Rather than like, oh, you want to do this? You can't do it. Um, yeah, if they, or, or it results it results in uh, five characters with spot hidden of 95 plus. Yeah. Like, <laughs> because right. everybody's like paranoid about, <laughs> right. I just don't want to go near the thing without seeing the thing. And so, you, you just, yes. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, it puts the incentives in a weird spot when you frame it at like each individual win-loss as the... The yeah. goal, yeah, you know, uh, rather than the overarching experience. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Right there, there are there are much more interesting ways for things to go wrong than a null result. Right. Yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, right. even this, the name of this podcast is play on the, the fail right. forward idea, which is like yeah. there is no. That's right. 
stopping the story. The story goes, you know. Yeah. No result is kind of the worst option, actually. Like it said, the worst thing that somebody can think of you is nothing at all. Right. Like if they hate you, at least they yeah. think about you. Yes. They have yeah. an opinion. If they don't have an opinion, that's about the worst insult you can have. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. It makes sense when you transfer that over to, you know, failure. Failure is better than, at least if it's failure in a grand scheme, something that That's really right. pushes the story forwards instead of just, Oops. Well, Right. Like getting happens. the dogs called on you is more interesting than not being able to climb over the Or fence. the dogs with bees in their mouths, and every time they bark, they shoot bees at you. Yeah. <laughs> um. So uh, another thing that I found in terms of moving the story forward is um, there's sort of a there's a dynamic in um, sort of intra-party dynamics, which has often been that um, if there are five characters in the party and four of them want to talk to the NPCs and one of them wants to attack the NPCs, well, guess what? You're going to wind up in a fight with the NPCs because the guy who wants to fight can force right. a fight uh, by just attacking. Right. And so um, and we saw that when the, uh, you know, the characters in this fantastic D&D campaign that I had were on a really kind of morally ambiguous mission where they were trying to maybe make an alliance with some people who were bad, but not that bad. <laughs> and, uh-huh. Right. And, and the, um, the cleric who is not that ambiguous. Um, you know, just uh, called down the flame strike on some of the civilians who were like the the worst people there, and that you know it was a whole and it's a whole incident where um, all the other players were like, oh, we wanted to we wanted the evening session to go this way, and now it's gone that way, and whatever we can't do this thing, and and um, and that was really the player who made me invent the if only rule in the techno campaign, <laughs> right? It's like, how, how can you express your character without actually doing the transgressive thing wow. that's going to get everyone impaled, right? That, that, that's, that guy's had an outsized influence on gaming. <laughs> that, that, that's right. But so for the, um, for the D&D campaign, I invented uh, the concept of story points where... Um, Everybody at the every player at the table gets a point per session, and they can spend that point to determine the how things are going mm, to okay. go for the party. So rather than just the the person who wants to mess things up gets to mess things up, it would be oh, if the person who wants to mess things up wants to mess things up, anyone else can spend a story point and say, I want actually I want this evening session to be about diplomacy and negotiation and cultural exchange and not about fighting. So I want that not to be how things go. And if the person who wants to cause trouble spends their story point, then they dice off or whatever. Um, but it, it is a sort of a meta way of the players to determine how the story progresses rather than the most outrageous character is the one who decides when right, things right, go right. south. And that's a different kind of player agency. Like it's the thing, it's it's sort of 
violates um, uh, one of the unspoken rules of role playing that like you get to play your character however you want. But that rule is often used by people who disrupt games and make the game worse for their friends because they're doing something that their friends don't want them to do. And that's what the story points do is they give some agency to the players who who want not to get derailed and who want not to get caught up in a stupid fight or yeah. whatever. And gives everyone sort of uh, an equal say in whether this is going to be another adventure about things going south or this is going to be uh, an, uh, an adventure where for, for once the erratic character keeps it in check and, and people, the other people can have the kind of story that. Right. Right. I mean, the way, and then it goes south a different yeah. way. Yeah. I mean, the way I tried to address that was I, so the characters in my game have, I kind of designed the player characters, the, the main, your main character to be a um you you can see fate and so they have the top-down view of the world that the players do and so part of what they can do is manipulate the threads of story and actually like reach in and go like here we're gonna do this now and yank and so so i I, interesting that's been fun because like and and, you know they have a, a, a magical way in setting for them to talk to each other without other people hearing and all the all the abilities that players have that make them better at viewing their world than the other PCs in that world, I, I've given to the characters, um, and yeah. it's resulted in some interesting play because, like, it, the fail state doesn't come up as much because they can yank on right. whatever they yeah. want, and also the adventuring is asynchronous, so you can have a player troop go off and attempt something that the other players don't want to do um, and it doesn't disrupt the story when they can see a, a story is about the climax. All the players can converge on the climaxing story without having to have been there the whole time because they can see the future a little bit. They could, Oh yeah. yeah. Cause they can see yeah. it. And yeah. So yeah. It, it, it's, it's split. It allows, you know, the, the, it violates the rule of split the party, you know, but, but in such a way, right. They're but not they're really not really because split. you're also taking a troop with you, and you can you can say like, oh well, I'm yeah. gonna go do a stealth thing, and then everybody can say, okay, I'm gonna go send my stealth guy with you, and then I get to participate in that story too, and then or everybody's like, oh, we're gonna do a right. magic ritual. It's gonna take a long friggin' time, and and you know, in in a game like Shadowrun, it would just be the wizard sitting there for a bunch of turns doing whatever, but in this, it's like everybody sends their wizard and everybody participates in the thing, and it's just like it, you know, so much of it is just so much of the mechanics are just a crutch for maximum player engagement. <laughs> Um, and I just tried to right. do that as an experiment yeah. to see what that would look like. Um, and so maybe it's yeah. working, maybe it's working, but we'll, again, we'll see. No, but w- w- once again, it's a systemic way to give players, uh, sort of more control so that things don't just end up going weird. Yeah. And especially, especially since to like, like in Kat's game, like her, your PC is immortal and you're kept on this prison planet by like these angels, these pseudo angels that, that um, keep you in check because they want you to learn something about yourself until you, you, you sort of have a divine awakening. That's the whole point of this prison planet is this mass incarceration of souls from across the galaxy that, that, they're just trying to get new gods to awaken and they're doing it in a brute force method. <laughs> but the players don't know this starting out. <laughs> so okay. it's, it, 
what I like about her game is that like, so it's all about player agency, but like nudging it, like, and making, like having that internal conflict and like, you have this thing that you violated about yourself and, and, but it's also like high fantasy too. Cause it's like every time you die, you're resurrected and then forced to go do it again until you figure out how to do it. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Actually to bring that point forwards, specifically the thing about that is when your character dies, the thing that I realized is that if a character dies and they stay dead and you just make a new character, you basically haven't really explored the fun part of the failure. Like you just, mm, right. you've missed the consequences for the action. The player just rolls up a new character. Okay. Yeah. They didn't really suffer. Behind. It's, it's, there's yeah, that's right. far worse things that you can do to someone than death. Yeah. That's death is actually one of the least annoying right. things you can do to a player. That's right. And so what actually happens is if you die in this game, then your character's revived, but they're basically stuck with sort of a paralyzing sort of, uh, it can come in a few different varieties like mental anguish or uh, paranoia or whatever, but it basically means they're permanently uh, restricted in what they can do. Wow. Yeah. But if you overcome that which killed you, you control it instead of it having power over you and you okay. lift the the problem. You no longer suffer from the problem anymore. So you are forced to face the same problem that was too powerful for you, except you have to yeah. face it weakened from this point on. Okay. And at that point, if you can actually succeed, you clear up all the problems. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Yeah, I agree. That's better than just you know, roll up a new character and and yeah. start fresh. Never been a very interesting yeah. like, fail state. It's just the character death. It's, it feels more like a you know speed bump, like in Diablo or something like that, where it's like, well, oh well, <laughs> go roll up a new dude, and start right. loot again. Right. Um, one of the free form. Uh, sorry, one of the ways of building player agency is to uh, have sort of free form statistics for a mm -hmm. character. And so I first saw this, I think in um, Ghostbusters where you have, you have stats like a regular, you know, a simple game, you know, like you have a brains stat, but then you also had a specialty and you could invent whatever specialty you wanted. And that specialty gave you a bonus. And it was, I think it was the first time that I saw a system where you could invent your character's feature rather than right, pull it right, off of right. a list. Um, and so we ended up doing that in our Smagaka. And so, and in Over the Edge, you are just making up your stats, right? You don't, you don't even pull them off a list. So your stat could be, you know, um, uh, revenant. So I'm back from the dead and that's my main stat and it gives me durability and strength and whatever and um but you're making that up and what you mean by revenant is different mm. from what somebody else might mean if they were playing a revenant or what have you there aren't, aren't, aren't any lists to draw from um and that you know that's player agency right down to the 
to how your character is defined. And yeah, see that in 13th age with the one unique thing. Well, and, the traits too that are, that are you know, the, the, the functional replacement for like skills. Yes. You know? yeah. Yes, that's right. The backgrounds. Yeah, backgrounds, I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. I call them traits yeah. in my game. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so that's, yeah, that's right. So I've, I've been doing that on and off mm-hmm. in my designs for a while. And I think it's, um, it can be a challenge and there's a little bit of a balance issue sometimes. Um, but, uh, uh, but that boy, in terms of defining your character, letting you invent a trait rather than choose one. Yeah. I think is I mean, in the traits in my game are probably, I mean, probably inspired a little more by fate, the way fate does it, where it's like, here's, here's a thing. Right. And then when it, when it's useful for you, it, it gives you this. And then when it can be wielded against you, it, it does this thing. Um, and, 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 but other than okay, that, it right. covers like, you know, like a trait could be sailor. And then as you go through the game and remember yeah. more about your character, you're like, oh, I was a sailor uh, from this port. And uh, that gives you an advantage there. But now that creates a connection too of like, gotcha. now people who don't like sailors from that port go like, hey, you, you're one of those guys. Right, right, right. Yep. The way the way I've got that set up is so because like I have like a, a amnesia. At, everybody's got amnesia at the start of the game. After the apocalypse, you wake up and you don't remember too much. And so it gives the opportunity the okay, players sure. to like start my character creation happens as a opening tutorial where the game opens and you do a little choose your own adventure thing and it sets up the world and, and then starts you introduces you to the rules and builds your character as you play through it um and then um from that you just keep progressing through whatever stories you want to follow um yeah. but having that initial yeah. opening of like I haven't I haven't figured out like how much of it I wanted to find because like when I started doing this game it was I had the a, a very specific setting in mind um, that was you know a close it was a Mediterranean during the Hundred Years War but with magic you know um, okay and yeah. so I I like you know uh, my dad's Sicilian so I've got that a a love of that culture is is sort of running through it like like the mediterranean the idea of like there's this island that everybody's been overrunning for a thousand years that's just this just this this, this, the melting pot before melting pot was a thing um and that's right all the cultural weirdness that comes out of that and and the rivalries and all that sort of interesting stuff and then also putting magic in that uh thing could be interesting but so and but now as i'm directing the game more towards like this creation engine like let like the setting is like falling away in chunks and i'm i'm nervous about like the game losing its identity to some extent so like in in over the edge Mm. you have this very free form creation but you also have like named npcs and uh you know very specific like it's this island it's a fictional island right but like there's there's these characters right. definitely right. exist um or or, or do you see it yeah. more of like a toolbox of like these characters may exist if you grab them that's that's more fair right that's right okay but like they they exist by default mm-hmm. but it's you know until something hits the table it, anything goes it does right? not i no. see yeah yeah so where for you where do you where is that line drawn comfortably then like do you where do you say like where do you put those rigidly defined areas of doubt and uncertainty? So that's really hard for me to say because um, 
I might be the only game master for over the edge who feels like they have to stick with the can. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess that's true. I guess. Yeah, I guess. Right. Because like, if you change it, it's a rewrite. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like, yeah, I, I need to test whether what I literally mm -hmm. wrote is good. And so I have to play what I literally wrote and anybody else can just take what I wrote and, and freewheel mm -hmm. it and riff off it and do yeah. whatever. And so I've, you know, I've never experienced coming to the over the edge game and deciding for myself what I'm going to keep and what I'm not. Huh. Yeah. That's interesting because like the, one of the, you know, playing, talking about D and D like the third edition, like two of our biggest, two of the biggest longest running campaigns I ever played in were, were D and D third edition. One ran from first to 21st level when the Epic level handbook oh, came yeah. out, you know, we were, we were, yeah, that was, that was a big chunk, you know? And, uh, yeah, and uh, through the three point five transition, and we did like two more really full, like up to fifteenth level campaigns, and, and wow, you know, we, we did yeah. a bunch. And you know, it was funny because you were talking about that high powered arc. Like the last game I yeah. ran of third edition was a Gestalt game where like everybody's two characters in one, and the idea was like all the heroes in the Forgotten Realms are dead. Like Tiamat figured out a way to grow dragons in like a time sped up mythal and mythdranner and she's just puking out great worms like okay and all the heroes are dead driss is dead elminster blah 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 it's up to you guys and the forgotten realms was i basically just stripped it of canon completely and was like yeah. go and just made it like the craziest over the toppest like dragons with class levels and monk levels and all kinds of crazy shit and wow um, yeah super yeah and it was a supers game essentially set in the forgotten realms right. um but but what that but why 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 I'm bringing that up is like one of the fun parts of that for me as somebody who you know read the Drizzt books and read yeah um uh chunks of the Elminster saga not the whole thing because holy shit but like you know yeah, pieces right. um <laughs> uh but um somebody who enjoyed like going into that world and being like oh I like this I like this and this is going out the window and blah 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 blah, blah. and I like I worry about like not giving enough like tooth to my setting that like i don't I, I don't inspire that kind of tinkering and yeah oh. it's tricky like i don't know where to put it i don't know where to where that line is i'm still mm, fence sitting i guess to some extent yeah so uh one of the things i do is i just lay out different possibilities mm -hmm. right so i'll describe a group or some secret society or whatever. And then uh, I'll have a little section that says, you could also play it this way, or maybe in your campaign, it looks like that. Or, um, and, and that even if they, even if a, a game master doesn't follow any single one of those suggestions, they'll get the idea that, oh, this is all, this is all to be messed with. This is all to be right. customized. Right. And that's what I want to get across. Mm -hmm. One thing I noticed that you mentioned there was the whole thing about how Elminster and all the other heroes basically were all killed off. And I found this really common when I've played with other GMs playing <laughs> their games. It's like one of the first things that people do almost immediately is either come up with a reason why the big hero of the setting can't deal with it themselves or they just end up removing all of the heroes in the setting entirely. Yeah, that's right. This is 
kind yeah. of a common issue. So it kind of makes you wonder, should you be setting up these powerful characters in the first place if you know they're basically going to be gutted first thing? Uh, you know, I don't know. It's like, you know, the novels are one thing, right? Because you then, then you like, you want to follow the characters. Like you want to feel like, like the, fir the, the, the chronological first three books of the Drizzy series where it's the under, like a uh, homeland and um, where he's, where he's still in Menzo Baranzin and, and trying to get out. Like those are some of the coolest fantasy books. I think they're way underrated as like just a, a study on internal conflict i think they're 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 really good in that light but like you know as as a person that inhabits the world of the players it's like well here's this incredibly altruistic super powerful nigh unkillable cuisin art of a character right. that, right. that yeah. could easily run into any of the encounters the players are facing and and, and want to help and uh, you know, you have to, at some point, if you're in Silvery Moon and like he doesn't show up, the players are going to be disappointed to some extent almost. Um, yeah. And yeah, like for me, like the only named characters I'll have in, in the game, I think are just going to be opposition. I don't think I'd name right. like allied, potential allies or potential people that could that jump are. in and do the character's job for them. Yeah. Right. And if they're potential allies they're like offstage allies they're not mm -hmm. adventurers but higher level right yeah exactly yeah which is the problem right yeah that that's that's a yeah that's right but but Ken, that's that's exactly right like those those characters are great for reading where they're the most powerful characters and they are the main characters but if you're playing player characters in that setting then the player characters are the main characters and they're not the most powerful. And now what do you do with these super powerful characters? And why do the characters, these little characters matter? Yeah. <laughs> and the yeah. excuse for always yeah, like, so like, get over the edge. There's lots of, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Tons, tons and stuff like just going on all the time. And it doesn't, you like, you know, in some way, in some degree, like you're beneath notice. Yeah. Until you want not until you don't want to be, which is pretty interesting. Cause it's like, it's all about that conspiracy vibe. Right. But for sure, there isn't some hero who has a history of solving big problems right. who's wandering around the city and that you can call on. Right, right, right. It kind of reminded me of like the Freakazoid episode of Lord Bravery, where he goes to rescue someone. And they're like, no, I can wait for Superman. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's pretty the funny. canonically like yeah. hardest character to write who's like, you know, perfectly noble and also good at everything and, yeah and it's just yeah. uh it's just you know it, well but, but but i think something you can learn from superman is like you know give him the hard choices right that's when he's most interesting is when he has to be in two right. places at once and that's i think well, that's the only time he really becomes interesting right is right. when he's stuck with a choice that he can't well it's a choice i mean that's a large part of the whole topic we're on is player agency is if you're going to have agency, you have to be able to make a choice and it has to be an informed choice. And an impactful one. Yeah. yeah. And it has to have an impact. Otherwise you're basically watching TV. Um, did we want to jump on uh, grandmother fish for, yes. for a closer? Yeah. That seems like a great thing to close on. Yeah. Okay. I would like to do a small introduction of that just, for him yeah. because 
I really loved the idea of this. So basically, Jonathan here has written a children's book, and it's like, oh, that shouldn't really be all that interesting, except that he wrote a book about evolution for small children. So yeah. this is something that's, well, he's described it as there was nothing on the market like that previously. There was like many, many versions of the Garden of Eden and similar things, but there wasn't anything that actually taught kids even the very most basic versions or not versions, but information about evolution at all. So yeah. would you care to elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, well, I mean, I had a little kid, right? Like a daughter, um, and she's 24 now. But but when she was little, uh, you know, preschool, like parents all over the world, all throughout history, have wanted to tell their kids kind of where we come from and what does it mean to be one of us? And and there wasn't a book like that. So um, I wanted something that would have the feel of, you know, a storybook. Um, or even kind of a folk tale, mm. and but that would be true. That would you know that would point kids in the right direction. And so um, I, I I worked on it for years and years. And the idea was you would look at all these different ancestors. You know, uh, old mother fish would be the first one, and then old mother amphibian and old mother reptile or whatever. Mm -hmm. And um, I really couldn't get it to work right. It's really hard to get the concept across because you have to do it in very few words. Yeah. And um, uh, and I had a manuscript that I thought was good and it wasn't good enough and I didn't know how to improve it. And I was stuck at that stage for a long time. Mm -hmm. And then and, um, kind of in a flash of inspiration sitting in my hot tub, I realized that if the kids mimic the sounds and motions of these animals, that would be really compelling. And so uh, what, what, I, what I had originally was something like, this was our old mother fish. She had a tail. Do you have a tail? And it would sort of show kids how, how you compare one organism to another. But it didn't, uh, it didn't really hang together. But now it is, she could wiggle and swim fast. Can you wiggle? And so the kids wiggle. And kids have no problem mimicking and um, pantomiming and and sort of representing things. It's really amazing that like little kids can, uh, like, when we get the grandmother reptile and we say, she could breathe air in and out. Can you breathe? Like they they do the big breath and the exhale. And it's <laughs> like th they, they know how to get across to somebody else the idea of breathing. Um, and even little kids who aren't even talking yet, they can you know, mimic and grasp and um, they can really, it turns out they really can follow along in a way that I didn't even realize they could. And I think kids are really focused on families. Mm -hmm. And so this is about grandmother fish right. and grandmother fish could wiggle and chomp. And she had many kinds of grandchildren that could wiggle and chomp. And then one of those was grandmother reptile. And so the kids really started to get that. Um, and the and the sounds and motions, you know, hooting like an ape and wiggling like a fish. Uh, kids love it. Um, I got a, a tweet from somebody who said uh, they think they've read the book to their kid fifty times. Wow. Yeah, because it's just 
um, you know, I had a friend who said, yeah, we, we read it every night. Like, it's just, uh, uh, it, it, I knew that parents would like it. Like, I kind of did the book for parents, mm-hmm. right? Because, well, it's evolution. Kids don't know that they want to learn about evolution. This is something that needs to appeal to the parents. Right, right. Well, the kids love it. So the, the, the parents might buy it, but it's the kids that ask to have it read to them over and over again. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we raised money for it on Kickstarter and we um, sold out of our first edition. And then we had um, three different publishing houses were all bidding on it to try to get wow. it. And then, nice. yeah, we decided to go with Macmillan. And then there were multiple imprints within Macmillan who were all on the phone with us talking about why we should go with this imprint or why should we go with the other imprint? Hmm. Um, yeah. And so I'm glad they were fighting over it. <laughs> it's really exciting, yeah. right? Like one of the publishers said um, that they had a, asked a children's book author to write a book on evolution a couple of years ago. And the author had come back and said, I don't know how to do it. I can't, get, I can't write this huh. book. And the thing is, I, it took me 15 years. No kidding, they can't write right. the book, right? Like you need to, you you need to have the passion that I have in order to noodle on something for years and years and get it right like this. Right? Yeah, passion or or, or 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 obsession. I mean, yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, yeah. I don't think any of us would be here like talking about like role playing game design unless we were yeah. obsessives in some way or another. Like, yeah, that's right. That's right. We just are. It's just our personalities. Like we can't. We have to get to the bottom of things. Like can't let it go. Yeah. Can't let it go. Rob, let it go. Yeah. I can't. Yeah. I can't. I can't. If it's, I mean, if it's a worthy thing, yeah. right? Like teaching evolution to little kids. That seemed like something that was worth my effort, and uh, sure seems to have been. It's actually not that complex, but it's too complex for kids that age, for the most part, for most people to describe to that level. Like, yeah. you can teach evolution to someone who's like eight or 10 really easily because it's actually fairly intuitive. But going uh, down there's that lots part, of stuff I did not understand about evolution until I was in college. Oh, yeah. So. But I, I found that most of that, like reading through Dawkins' work and such, for example, yeah. like it actually makes a lot of sense. And I use a lot of it in like my game design. And I've used it in yeah. world design for books, video games, you know, tabletop games. It it makes yeah. a lot of sense once you actually understand it. It takes a while to learn it all, but that's honestly just because it's never really been taught very well. So getting in on like the ground floor like that, that's a really big yes. step. That's the idea is that if I could give kids a grounding in the basics, then then they mm-hmm. have a framework to understand everything else that they learn, all the details about dinosaurs and, you know, species and that, that sort of thing. If they, if they have the basics, yeah, um, then they can understand things in that framework. Yeah. Reducing things like the economy of language is like always, boy, that is, that is yeah. the job, isn't it? I mean, really it is, it is yes. getting across the idea with minimal necessary force <laughs> in some sense. You yeah. Know? Yeah. So, so I got a lot of advice from really smart and creative friends when I was finishing the mm-hmm. book. And one was a husband and wife team. They're both writers. And the wife said, it's a children's book. You need to have fewer words. And the husband said, it's 
uh, it's kind of dry. You need more details. Holy shit. <laughs> and so I was like, okay. And, and in a way I did it, right? Like I cut the extraneous stuff um, and focused on the stuff that really needed to be there. And they were both right. But, but boy, if I didn't have people giving me those conflicting directions, I never would have worked and worked to make both of those things come true. Yeah. That truth is always in that paradox somehow. Yeah, that's yeah. right. That's right. Weird. Honestly, if anything, I think you might've been ideally suited for writing that particular book because you're a game designer, like game design is largely dealing with mutually exclusive goals. Okay. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, like complexity versus boredom versus yeah. Yeah. That's right. How to get how to get people to engage imaginatively with abstract ideas. Yeah. 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 It's, it's very cool, man. It's very like I'm 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 a big fan of of your work in general, and then like you know Thirteenth Age and Ars Magica specifically because those are my you yeah. know. Um, and Thanks. then this new this new this new thing that is is a very interesting turn, you know, like yeah um, yeah that I think is necessary, right. particularly, particularly in, in, in light of many truths that, that are unfortunate about, about the world, uh, you know, yeah. fundamentally grounding children in reality, I think is, uh, Hey, do a, do a, do a, your next children book should be one on formal logic. If you could just, <laughs> <laughs> just, just, just reduce that to a picture book, if you could, please. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. and then also uh, just uh, third year college critical theory. That would be also, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, kids love animals and kids love families. And this book is about how we're all part of that animal family. Yeah. So it, it's, it'll be hard to come up with a book that's as appealing as this, like this speaks right to what kids want foundational yeah. yeah yeah that's right yeah yeah well um i think geez man this has been a great i've been really i've been yeah. really enjoying having this, this conversation been, and uh this has been a lot of fun great yeah man i'm glad you enjoyed it and uh anytime you want to come on and and sling some stuff to our vaguely non-existent audience uh, you're, you're more than welcome okay yeah more than welcome. all right that sounds great and i'm sure i'll have more to say someday sure yeah. man yeah and uh so thanks for thanks for coming on um thanks for the interesting conversation about player agency and and, and engaging with us on 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 a fairly high level i mean i really it's it's you know you don't get to talk to a lot of people who just poke at this stuff for years yeah you know yeah uh and and player agency boy that 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 speaks right to my heart yeah me too yeah, me too so i think all of us yeah without that you don't have a game anyway it, yeah. it should be the primary thing that everybody's focused on above all else i think yeah yeah well, cool, man. All right. So for, All right. Uh, yeah, cool. for, for everybody listening out there, every, you know, our one listener, uh, I appreciate you sticking, <laughs> sticking with us. Um, yeah. Next time been... I'll wear two sock puppets so we can pretend we have two <laughs> viewers. <laughs> nice, nice. Um, yeah. And uh, thanks to Jonathan Tweet. And uh, where can they find you? I mean, Google Jonathan Tweet, really. Yeah, easy to find on uh, Twitter. I'm uh, Jonathan M. As in Michael Tweet. I've got an author page on Facebook, and Grandmother Fish has its own website, and 
uh, Facebook page and Twitter account. So uh, Jonathan Tweet or Grandmother Fish, you can find us both. Yep. Great. And uh, yeah. Okay. Well, thanks very much for listening, guys. Thanks. And thanks for that. Thanks, Ken. Yeah. And uh, you're this very welcome. Funny. This has been very enjoyable. Um, good. Yeah. Same yeah, here. Great. And uh, everybody out there in Flail Forward Land, good night. It's always night where you are. Don't forget that. Uh, <laughs> we'll see you next time. Yeah. Good night. Thanks. You bet. Yeah.